In his book, Three Pieces of Glass, Eric Jacobson talks about how the car windshield, the television set, and the smartphone have had a profound effect on every single one of our lives. Each of those pieces of glass had the best of intentions when it started, but grew into something that has moved every single one of our hearts to live in kind of like this illusion of connection. But deep down, we continue to live in isolation. This generation is considered to be the, one of the uh, most lonely generations of all time. Now, these revolutionary pieces of glass were designed to change the world for the better. For example, after World War II, the television was designed to bring families together. And it did it for a while. But now it's a tool of isolation. And our, far, and our smartphone is far, far worse. Post-World War II, as a society in the U.S., there was a big shift that took place. Buildings began to be built with the expectation that people would commute from one place to the other by driving an automobile. This was the first piece of glass that kind of began this shift towards change. Because prior to the war, commuting to and from work happened in one of these ways, either by train, by walking, by riding a bike, or in the rarest of occasions, you took a private car. Because the economy was booming post-war, this changed the landscape of how companies needed to expand in order to grow. As a result, they began to branch out. And as a result, people needed jobs, so they started to go along with those jobs as well. And so the use of cars went from it being a luxury to now being a need in order to go to and from work. Now today, this might seem like a strange concept because our primary source of commuting is a car. And it's the only realistic option for us. Prior to World War II, a car was a luxury. And now in the 21st century, we're a part of a society that is, not, that is solely dependent on a vehicle to get around. The average commute time is about 26.6 minutes here in the US. And if you're commuting to and from work, you spend a little bit under an hour in a day in the car. That's more than 250 hours a year on average. Or to think about it in another way, that's six whole weeks of work just being spent in a car on your commute to and from work. Now, a typical house prior to World War II had a front porch, a front door, maybe a window or two where you could be able to see in and be able to see out. But the dining room was the central meeting place of a home. The dining room was where all the special events took place, celebrations, and any ordinary life uh, took place uh, here in the, in the dining room. The dining room was a place of gathering. After World War II, when we looked at a house, its most appealing feature would turn out to be 
the fact that if it was a two or three car garage, and if you were to look inside of the home, the center place of gathering shifted from the dining room to the living room, where the television became the center of the room. This is the second piece of glass, the television set. Most sporting events now take place between the hours of 4.30 and 7.30, which is typical dinner time for us. If you're not into sports, then there's the ability to stream your favorite shows. You have the capability to watch anything you want at any time that you want. Live TV has found its replacement by streaming services. This is a fascinating um, statistic. The average Netflix user in the US watches 3.2 hours of Netflix each day. The television has become the gravitational force inside of each uh, of our homes and we orchestrate our entire lives around it. Then we have the third piece of glass and by far the worst, the smartphone. The smartphone is a small device, mine's over there, intentionally, that's in every single one of our pockets. The smartphone has become the, the single most used piece of technology that we own. It is a tool in which we use to communicate with the ones that we, uh, that we love, to stay connected with family, with friends, and a resource to stay in touch with our workplace. It also provides entertainment, news, and a variety of other distractions. This screen allows us to be online and within reach at all times. The average American touches their phone. It's not even using it, you just touch it. 2,617 times each day and spends about two hours and 30 minutes staring at that small screen. Most teens, most teenagers today, touch it about twice that amount with over 5,000 times per day. These three pieces of glass, although they were created to be good, have come to shape us and not in a good way. We have become more hurried, and as a result, unable to be fully present, unaware not just of the people around us, but unaware of what's happening inside of us as well. And the inability to be emotionally available. In the 1980s, the term hurried child began to surface. And this is the condition in which parents overschedule their children's lives. They push them hard for academic success and expect them to behave and react as miniature adults. The irony about all these pieces of glass is that when they were first introduced, they were supposed to help human life flourish. They were to help facilitate the work-life balance and allow more time for the important things, which was family life. 
author Arthur Bors shares how growing up in a school, uh, when, when he was growing up in school, they were being taught that machines and labor-saving devices would make life easier. That the major challenge that we would be presented with in our time would be that we would have too much time for leisure. It hasn't turned out that way at all. He was talking about how courses in, psych- in sociology at the time were beginning to give out assignments that urged and encouraged students to start planning for hobbies and leisure possibilities because in two or three decades, middle-aged people would be working half the time or less. Imagine that. A 20-hour work week. Wouldn't that be amazing? The concern back in the 80s was that if people were not prepared, the challenges that people would face would not be of stress and worry. People would actually be freaking out because they wouldn't know how to cope and deal with all of the free time that they had. We all know that the sad reality is that the opposite of this is true. Leisure time isn't the problem for most of us. It's finding the space to be able to have leisure. We have become busy, busy, busy. Busyness has become the mark of status, a mark of importance. And time has become even more, even more precious of a resource for all of us. Writer Jim Forrest says this, It is a pity that we have stripped so many walls of their crucifixes and put up so many clocks in their place. We are surely more punctual than our ancestors, but we're spiritually poor. A crucifix may not tell the hour, but it offers crucial advice about what to do with the moment that we're living in. In the beginning, time was told by the sun's movement across the sky. Monks are credited with creating the first clocks. Spiritual men are credited for creating the clock. Originally, it was to remind themselves to pray. Slowly, nearby communities also began to kind of adopt this and display clocks on bell towers and in central places to remind them of their worship services and times of prayer. But slowly, this all shifted. And the clocks and the bell towers began to announce the start and the end of the workday. Time has become a vice that rules every single one of our lives. We live hurried, trying to add more and more to an already jammed and packed schedule. Dallas Willard, a great man of faith, a a Christian philosopher of our time, when they asked him, hey, what is the key to spiritual health? This is what he answered. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life of our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. There is nothing else 
that will bring spiritual health. Hurry. The hurried spirit that lives inside every single one of us is something that we all have to battle against. No one is exempt from this. The challenge that we all face, especially as believers, as Christians, is that it's everywhere. Both people inside of the church and outside of the church live in a hurried spirit that makes us believe that that's the norm. These three pieces of glass have shaped us to be hurried, and it has also shaped our attention span. The average attention span is of eight seconds. We can no longer just sit in quiet. We need something to continuously stimulate us. Coming to a church service and worshiping God is simply just not enough. I have to be entertained. The music has to be good. The performance has to be better. The preacher better be funny. He better move me. Have lost the essence of what worshiping God is all about. It's about Him and nothing else because we live with this hurried spirit. We better be in and out within the hour because I got things to do. I got a game to watch. I got dinner plans. I got reservations. Right? We live with this hurried spirit, especially when it comes to being in the house of God. At home, it's the TV or our phone that's pulling at our attention. While we're commuting to work, it's what's playing on the stereo, or I won't tell anyone, but some of us might even be looking at our phone while we're driving. If we're at work, we're on a screen or on our phone. We are constantly being bombarded by stimulation. This is hurting us, but what's really... uh, What's, what's it, what's, what it's really doing, it's, it's creating an impatience within us. Think about it. We all struggle with this. We all struggle with being still and waiting. You don't have to raise your hands. But how many of you, I do this all the time, when you're at the grocery store waiting to pay, Do you reach for your pocket to look at your book while you're standing in line? Or when you're at at dinner, how many of us reach into our pockets and our phones to see if we missed anything? This impatience sometimes makes us even imagine that our phones went off, that we got a notification. So we'll pull it up. Depending on how big this uh, issue is, you might even open your your messages and just scroll to see if there's any unanswered text. And you're going to take that time to answer. Right? We are impatient. This impatience is robbing us of our ability to be present. The sad reality is that many of us take this impatient, this hurried spirit, this approach of we got to go in, we got to get what we need, and then get out mindset in our relationship with Jesus. 
Jesus, give me what you need to give me in 10 seconds or less. Speak to me because I need direction. Speak to me in this quiet time. Give me a word. Give me a sign. Waiting is something that is hard. It's extremely difficult. Being patient is something that seems and feels impossible because of our hurried spirits. In our impatience, we live with the tension of living and we either live and endure the long suffering of waiting with God, or we believe that God's promises and God's existence doesn't hold true. And when we live in the latter, God becomes a circumstantial God. We base God's goodness on our circumstances. And we talked about, a little bit about this last week. Sitting and waiting and being patient become unattractive, unappealing, unsexy things about a, a relationship with Jesus. They become sores that make us uncomfortable every time we come to Jesus and we feel like he isn't there. And, and all we have to do and all we're left with is just to sit there and wait. At times, we take on kind of like this atheist approach and say, I've had enough. I've seen enough. I've waited long enough for God. And we take matters into our own hands. But if we can be patient and understand that patience is a part of our journey of faith, our trust in God allows us to endure and say, I will wait on God. Waiting and being patient is the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. I love what um, Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic priest, the way that he explained this, he said this, he says, it is not that God wants to test our patience. The need for patience arises out of the rhythms of the innate, uh, rhythms innate within life itself or within love itself. They need to unfold as do flowers and pregnancies, according to their own good time. They cannot be rushed, no matter how great our impatience or how great our discomfort. You see, God isn't setting traps, testing us left and right to see how patient we are. Our lack or our inability to be patient, uh, to be patient comes from the unnatural hurried pace that we live our lives, our lives by. Patience comes from the natural rhythm of love, which is the natural rhythm of God. When we feel unpatient, when we feel rushed and hurried, and our inability to wait, that means that we're living under the wrong rhythm, under a rhythm that's not designed for us. The process of patience is difficult and is something that unfolds as we learn to do our life with Jesus. Just as flowers and pregnancies take their natural course and come to fruition in their own time, in their due time, they cannot be rushed. I cannot tell a flower to hurry up and bloom. I cannot... <laughs> 
I never told my pregnant wife to hurry up and have the baby. If anything, it was the opposite. How long can the baby stay in there? Because I know the sleepless nights are coming. Patience is a beautiful gift that's uncovered in our journey in its proper time. Listen again to Jesus' invitation for all of us in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want you to repeat that in your head, in your heart, or even out loud. I will find rest for my soul. Let that sink in. You will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A life of following Jesus is a life of being with Jesus, learning from Jesus, and ultimately being able to do what he did. This is the natural rhythm in which we're able to flourish and live in the kingdom of God. Living in the kingdom of God, living in the kingdom of the heavens, as Jesus proclaimed it, is being able to be with him, be with Jesus, to learn from him and to do what he did. Jesus' first invitation is to be with him. This is a radical thing that he said. It's a radical invitation because it's countercultural, even in his time. And it's also counter to our wiring and the way that we do life. The simplicity in this invitation feels contradictory to how we live our lives, it's uncomfortable. Following Jesus is simple when we really think about it. But it's our human limitation and our human rebellion that overcomplicates it. Jesus' invitation is simple. But this simplicity makes it hard for our minds to grasp it. That's why the second part is to learn from him. The first part is to learn to just simply be with him. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 10 on Luke, verses 38 through 42. It was a passage of scripture that um, Robbie opened us up with, and we were able to worship God through that. Um, and it says this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do everything by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed. 
or indeed only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. When I was preparing for today, the thing that surprised me about the kingdom of God is that hospitality is the heart of the kingdom of God. Hospitality is at the heart of kingdom living. Verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Hospitality in the Greek has actually no direct word, but a word that's very closely tied with it is, I'm going to butcher it partly because I'm trying to say it in Greek, in English, and my Spanish, so bear with me. It's a philohexnia, something along those lines, okay? Which means to love a stranger. It's just to love a stranger. Some of the other translations where Martha um, opens her home to him, it says, hey, Martha welcomed Jesus and his disciples. Now, this may seem odd because hospitality is something that's very rarely practiced today. We're very transactional in our relationships. We're very transactional in our relationships. We do more outings, like, hey, let's go out to coffee, let's go out to dinner, than, hey, why don't you come to my house and just break bread with me and have a meal with me? That's why this theme, this core of hospitality is, is odd as, as we look into the kingdom of God. As in, Hospitality is the welcoming. It's the receiving of someone into our homes. Our homes are the most sacred spaces in our lives. It's the one place where we just let our walls down and we're able to be who we really are. The dorky, the energetic, the rude, the unpolite, the dirty, the messy. I mean, you name it. We, there's, there's, there's no prejudice, right? We're able to be ourselves. When Martha welcomes Jesus and his disciples, who are at this time just a bunch of strangers, she's extending herself not just to care for their needs, but she's inviting them into her most sacred space. And Jesus does this exact same thing for us as well. When he says, come to me, he's extending his hospitality to us. He's welcoming us into the most sacred space that exists in his life, the kingdom of God. A space where God's presence resides. This is radical. This simplicity, this invitation of Jesus flipped everyone's world upside down because it went against everything in their culture at the time where the Jewish leaders said, you have to do this to be righteous, to be in right standing with God. There were over 500 rules and regulations that they had to live by. But if we're honest, 
it also goes against everything in our culture today. That says we have to earn. That we have to work. Jesus doesn't start his invitation to us about come to me by giving a list of prerequisites for entering into the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, show me your resume. Show me what you've done. Show me what you're doing. He simply opens his arms and invites us in. Like Martha and Mary, he welcomes us in. How is Jesus welcoming you? What does his welcome What is him opening, inviting you into his home look like for you? Here's the second point. Through the gift of hospitality, we learn how to receive. The next verse. She had a sister, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do everything by myself? Come on, tell her to help me. When someone enters, when we enter someone's home when we're visiting, we don't show up to clean. That would be weird, right? We don't show up to cook. Oftentimes, we're on the receiving end of someone's generosity. We greet each other. We make our way into the home. Oftentimes, sit, we catch up, we drink, we eat until it's time for a meal or whatever the purpose of the gathering is. But this is where things get messy for us, especially with our inability to be patient, our inability to receive. We act, the act of receiving is something that is lost on us because we're so used to earning and giving that when it comes to receiving, it feels so foreign and so difficult for us to accept, especially when it comes from strangers. And in that discomfort, we switch to try to work and earn what's being given. Like Martha, we take on this approach to need to work to earn what's being given. Learning to be with Jesus means to learn to accept and receive what he offers. Now this is the radical hospitality that exists in the gospel. Jesus is inviting us to enter and live in the kingdom of God that doesn't require us to work. Its invitation is for us to receive. Almost three years ago, Liliana and I opened our doors to our home and began to welcome people in. It was right at the beginning of our infertility journey. We were heartbroken. We were lost. We were confused. We didn't know what was left. We didn't know what was right. But we just felt like we just needed to invite people in. What started out as a book club turned into a gathering where people 
learned to receive. Without realizing it, there was a deep hunger and a deep need for people to experience Jesus in a different way. And we didn't know what we were doing because we weren't doing a formal Bible study. We were literally just sitting around our dinner table having dinner. But we began to see that people were just receiving something. And it wasn't anything from us because I'll tell you one thing. The meal, it wasn't a five-star meal. They were very humble and simple dinners. Dinners that came out of our weekly budget for our family um, groceries. The way God multiplied some of those meals is beyond me. We never went, it was weird. Lidiana and I never said, okay, we have to put extra money because we're having people over. No, this is our budget for our family for groceries this week. And out of it, we're going to provide a meal for whoever shows up. We realized that the greatest thing that people took away from our home wasn't the meal, it wasn't the games, or the time where everyone shared. It was how people experienced the love of Jesus relationally through everyone there. Because the people that came didn't have anything to give. If anything, they were tired, they were exhausted. We centered around a dinner table. Actually, people received whatever the Spirit of God had for them that evening. We saw healings. We saw miracles. We saw God answer prayers. And there's still some prayers that are unanswered from that group. And that is the beginnings, the foundations of this church. It was that very gathering where I felt leading to start this church. I was uh, giving a friend um, some spiritual direction the other day. This isn't in my notes, so I'm going to kind of branch out a little bit because I just feel like um, to kind of help illustrate this point. And I've just kind of been sitting on this thought, but, you know, a lot of the times I, I feel like I have a hard time receiving from Jesus because I don't let Jesus be a host. I know a list of what Jesus is. He's loving, he's kind, he's gracious, he's merciful. The list goes on and on. He's all these great things. I'm not saying he's not. He is. But oftentimes, when I come to Jesus, I fill in the blank of what he should be. I define the role that Jesus is. So he's not able to meet me in my deepest of places because I don't allow him to be the host that he wants to be. And that's hard. That's very hard. That's what learning to be with Jesus is all about. Allowing Jesus to be what our hearts need him to be. If I feel lonely, a jumping, joyous, triumphant Jesus is not going to do it for me. Because when I get depressed, when I get sad, when I feel lonely, I need a compassionate Jesus 
who sees me, doesn't judge me, and moves into that space without telling me anything, without needing to tell me what I need to do, without telling me that I need to spend hours in the Bible. What I need is a loving embrace from a man who understands. But getting to that, allowing him, it's a space of us learning to receive. But in order to receive, we have to let go of what we're holding on to. And a lot of the times is this, uh, preconceived notions, these expectations, these ideals of what we think Jesus is. And sometimes we have to let that go to be able to receive what he has for us. This week, I was, I was struggling. I was struggling because my life today is not what I imagined it would be. I shared with you guys last week, I care for my daughter what feels like every hour of the day. And in between, I'm having to write a message and try to figure out how to grow this church. And I was sharing with my friend that I'm amazed at how much God does with the little time that I have than when I had 50 hours to write a sermon and grow this church. And I found myself being like, God, like I get mad at God when he doesn't deliver me from a temptation. I get mad at God when I, when, I, when I fall. And I'm like, man, I think that's because I'm not allowing him, I'm not allowing myself to receive. I didn't wait long enough to see how he was going to show up. I gave up. I held on to this. Because I felt like the temptation, the quick relief, the, the, the moment of anger, me yelling would be enough. But then I realized I just didn't wait long enough to let go and receive. I didn't allow Jesus to be the host that he needs to be, that he wants to be to usher me in to his kingdom. Here's the third and final point. Through his gift of hospitality, we learn how to be present. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What did Mary do? She sat at his feet and listened. She sat first and listened second. She was with Jesus first, and then she listened. Jesus' words for Martha are words that are directed to all of our hearts. In our constant race to get as much as we can done, in our hurried state and in patience, we have lost the ability to be present. The gift in this hospitality into the kingdom of God lies in the gift of presence. Nothing else matters. And Jesus lets Martha know about this. He says, Mary has chosen the one thing that truly matters, and that is just to be present. The simplicity 
of the most fundamental part of following Jesus and living in the kingdom of God is just to be with him. It's just to be with him. This is the essence of kingdom living. To be with Jesus. We can fill our lives with doing everything that's in our strength until we run ourselves to the ground and the sad reality will remain that Jesus will continue to feel distant and the kingdom of God will seem unattainable and a million miles away. We will pray for death. But if we allow ourselves to simplify things and learn to just be with him, this is the beginning of our new lives. To be present. When, that's when we realize that Jesus, even in the waiting, is there. That even what feels like a, like a moment of desolation, even when it feels like you're in the wilderness, in the desert, whatever metaphor you want to use, in a valley, that even that is a felt experience of God. That is how we begin to live differently than everyone. So what is Jesus inviting you to today? For you as an individual, as a person, what is Jesus inviting you to today? Would you pray with me? Lord, I just want to thank you first and foremost just for what you did on the cross for us. It's hased. Right? The Hebrew word that explains, that gives a little bit of an illustration of who you are. Lord, you don't give us what we deserve. In your loving kindness, you give us what we don't deserve. You give us everything. And thank you. Or would you fill us with your spirit, God? And in that feeling, would you just allow us to breathe, to rest, to delight in you? Would you open up our eyes, our hearts, our hands to be able to see what it is that you want us to receive from you so that we can have rest for our souls? Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen.